Hello there, everybody. Welcome back to Co-op Couch, the Arnie's gaming series. I'm Austin Terry, and I'm joined by my player two, Matt Johnson. Matt, how are you? I'm doing well, Austin. This is pretty exciting. You know, this show, even though it's been a month since we put out our first episode, it's still in its infancy, if you will. It's only our second episode, monthly series, so I'm excited to talk about some games today. What about you? I'm excited too. It's fun. You know, we're, we're playing with some new things for the format, so I'm, I'm excited to see what the final product of the show is going to look like as we continue to tweak it. Yeah, well, speaking of that, how about you tell the people out there what exactly this show is and what they can expect? Yeah, so this is Co-op Couch. This is our monthly gaming show. This is a show under the Arnie's umbrella, if you will, where Matt and I just dedicate this entire hour to talk only and solely about gaming. This is our place where we just come to talk about games. Whenever we started this podcast originally, the whole concept was we'll finally have a place to talk about everything, movies, TV, games, and everything in between. And as we kind of went on, we were like, I think we might be neglecting the game side. So this is just perfect for us. It's just once a month we come here and it's all games for an hour or less or more. We'll see. <laughs> well, on today's episode of Co-op Couch, we are going to be breaking down some of our personal favorite levels in gaming. But first, Matt? We have a new segment to launch this week. That's right, a brand new segment. This may only be our second episode of Co-op Couch ever, but we're already bringing all the new segments to you. We figured, hey, it's a monthly show, so why not, at the beginning of every episode, highlight the biggest gaming news of the month? So this is going to be a lot of fun. We're only going to do a few per show. I mean, who knows? If we get to the summer and they just can't stop throwing the news out there, maybe it'll turn into a full episode. We'll have to see what happens. But for now, we just have a few highlights for you. So make sure, by the way, let us know on Instagram at the Arnie's what news stories were your favorites of the month and what you wish we had included. So without further ado, let's get in to the big gaming news for February 2021. All right. So the first little bit of news that I have here is a movie I didn't even know was happening, but Jack Black apparently is joining Jamie Lee Curtis, Kevin Hart, and Kate Blanchett in a Borderlands movie. Uh, the movie is being directed by Eli Roth and written by Chernobyl writer Craig Mazin. Yeah, the cast itself isn't too out there, I guess, but the team behind it seems odd. I mean, Eli Roth, known for his crazy, gory, violent movies for the most part, stuff like Hostel. But um, yeah, it's a weird team in Craig Mason of Chernobyl. Also weird. Maybe he's a fan of this IP. Who the hell knows? But cool team behind the scenes, no doubt. But yeah, let's focus on the cast here. I mean, not only is Jack Black in this, but he is going to be the voice of Claptrap a very iconic and, dare I say, annoying character from Borderlands. So I think Jack Black will bring some fun to that character. And the rest of the cast is awesome. So, I mean, Austin, what do you think of this project and how it's shaping up so far? Yeah, the cast is interesting. Uh, Jack Black and Kevin Hart, I guess, just must have formed a pretty big friendship on Jumanji because they've done a couple of projects together now. Jamie Lee Curtis is a name that surprises me the most. I did not expect to see her in any type of video game movie, I don't think. Yeah, for me, and kind of the same reasoning that you just gave, but it's what I would apply to Kate Blanchett. I was surprised to hear that she was joining this, obviously. She's done some fun roles before. I mean, she's been in huge franchises like Lord of the Rings and Thor Ragnarok, but seeing her name pop up, kind of interesting. So who knows? Maybe that's a sign of a good script. I Maybe that's me being too hopeful, but maybe they heard the pitch or they saw the script and was like, hey, who cares if this is a video game movie that don't have great track records, but... This could actually be a cool project based on what they know and we don't. So that's kind of what I'm hoping for. Yeah, so we don't know too much about the story, but uh, the, the brief details I was able to find is it, 
is the movie is actually going to focus on Lilith, who has been imprisoned in an Atlas Corporation space prison, and she is going to be given the chance to earn her freedom by rescuing the Atlas Corporation CEO's daughter, Tina. Makes sense. Yeah, so it sounds like they're kind of just picking and choosing some cool elements from the game series as a whole. Obviously, Kevin Hart, I know, is playing Roland, so it sounds like they are taking that core cast from Borderlands 1 primarily, but again, they're kind of picking and choosing stuff from the franchise, it sounds like, that they'd want to add. Um, I'm excited about it again. I mean, the cast so far and the team behind the scenes is pretty exciting. So I'm actually going to look forward to future news about this. And Austin, I know it's not Borderlands 1, it's more Borderlands 2, but fan casting, Handsome Jack, any ideas? Oh, I didn't even think about that. You know, maybe this is too on the nose, but I could see a good McConaughey as Handsome Jack, I think. Ooh. I think that could be kind of fun. I, I like it when he does villain roles, and uh, he kind of halfway did the villain and the gentleman, and I think he kind of knocked it out of the park. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I'm going to double down on McConaughey for my fan casting. I like that pick. I think I might go, maybe it's a bit more traditional, but I think I might go John Hamm. Ooh, I like that too, especially after his kind of business-like acumen and madman i uh, i could see that, that could <laughs> yes work. he needs to bring that to the role that's what we need from handsome jack his madman experience perfect i guess i'm cautiously optimistic about this one we still have yet to uh you know have a fantastic video game movie it's always some there's always a disconnect it seems like when they try to bring it to the big screen so we'll just have to see if this one works out yeah video game movies are weird i think we've gotten some that are really fun but yeah, I, I haven't seen one that's like actually great or anything still. I've said it up in the show before, but I think the best adaptation is still the anime Castlevania on Netflix. Um, as for live action, Sonic was fun, but it certainly wasn't great or anything. So who knows? Maybe this will be it because call me crazy. I'm not holding out hope for Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg's Uncharted this year. <laughs> I also don't have a whole lot of hope for that one either, but who knows? Maybe we'll be surprised. Well, Austin, yes, while live action video game movie adaptations may still be out of reach from being great or even good, <sighs> again, maybe I'm cautiously optimistic, maybe even too optimistic here, but there is an adaptation, while not a movie, to TV show. Maybe it'll be the first great one. I mean, we're hearing more about The Last of Us on HBO. That is HBO, Austin. We know that much. And Craig Mazin, who's writing Borderlands, is also going to be here writing executive producing, I think also the co-creator, along with Neil Druckmann of The Last of Us TV show that we now know is starring Pedro Pascal as Joel and Bella Ramsey as Ellie. What do we think, Austin? I'm excited. I love both of these castings. Uh, Bella Ramsey, obviously, of Game of Thrones fame. Pedro Pascal, you know, you name it. Wonder Woman 84 fame, The Mandalorian fame. And Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, you're right. And Game of Thrones as well. Wow, I keep forgetting he was in Game of Thrones. But yeah. Uh, these castings I think are perfect and I cannot wait to see what HBO does with this IP. Ugh, there's just so much to say. We really don't know much beyond kind of Druckmann's involvement. Obviously, they want him, who had a huge part in creating the games and writing them as well, to come over here and do the same thing for this show along with Craig Mazin, who we should also know has a relationship with HBO because he was kind of the mastermind behind the brilliant series Chernobyl. So it's an exciting team, kind of like we talked about with Borderlands, but Maybe it's because I have more of a fondness for The Last of Us that I have more of a hope here. Again, maybe it's misplaced, but I guess the first question we should ask ourselves, Austin, is do we think it's going to be a pretty like standard adaptation of The Last of Us 1, or are we going to expect 
like lots of differences? I mean, what's this going to be? I don't. I don't think there's going to be too many differences. I, I think from from what I've read and rumors I've seen is they are kind of heavily leaning into the story from The Last of Us Part One. However, I still think they will try to do something new just to surprise fans. I don't think they want it to be completely predictable. I'm just curious to see how how far they'll stray from the game itself. Yeah, and obviously when they made Last of Us One back in 2013, there was no ideas for a sequel until either afterwards or later in development based on stories they've told. So do you think there's a chance that this series, miniseries, season one, whatever the hell they're going to call it, will they kind of put stuff in there that would plant the seeds for a season two? Like, I guess what I'm saying, for example, is do we get a scene in this season that kind of sets up who the doctor is at the end of The Last of Us One? Do we see an Abby type character that sets up for a season two? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, are they going to try and set up to do The Last of Us Two? Are they going to adapt that as well in some way? I got to imagine that whenever they were trying to come up with the ideas for The Last of Us Part Two, they had a ton of ideas that they liked but couldn't make it work in the game. So I wouldn't be surprised if we got some like behind the scenes stuff where they said like, hey, we introduced this in the show. We didn't put it in the game, but it was an idea we had. So they could use the show to implement a lot of ideas that they didn't put in the actual game. So I, I think there could be plenty of material. I mean, this is a huge world, The Last of Us. There's tons of stories that maybe could stray away from Joel and Ellie that they could put in the show too. So I think if it's a hit, if, if HBO likes season one, I wouldn't be surprised if we got a season two as well. Yeah, I just, Neil Druckmann strikes me as someone that wouldn't even want any remote involvement in this if there wasn't a reason to do it. And the big trouble with video game adaptations is the whole reason we love video games is the interactivity like that the player has. You have agency in the story and just moving through the action whereas when you're watching something it's so passive so if it's just going to be a straight adaptation of the game then what's the point just watching joel and ellie go through the motions that we already know and we have no agency as the player so there must be a reason that they're doing this i feel like so i agree with you like you i am i'm way more hopeful and, and faithful for the for, in the team behind this one than i am for other video game type things that try to make it to tv or movies i think it i think it could be misplaced but I have seen interviews with Neil Druckmann where he like says his his process for video game writing is basically to think of it as a show. So I think he kind of already has that mindset when he's making stuff. So the fact that he's involved with the show gives me a lot of hope and I can't wait to see what they do. And again, I know it's an easy thing to say. People say it all the time, but HBO just has such a pedigree at this point that the fact that they're investing time and money into this to create another flagship miniseries or like, you know, season long show, whatever they're going to do is a big deal. And it's worth noting because they usually do. I feel like most HBO shows are at least solid. I mean, there's very few that are bad. So it gives me hope. We cannot forget, though, Ubisoft was involved with the production of the Assassin's Creed movie. And that movie was trash. So no matter who gets involved, it seems like it's always impossible to make good video game transitions. But we'll see what happens. God, I hope that Netflix Assassin's Creed show is even remotely better than that movie we had to sit through. <laughs> that was bad. Well, Austin, we are excited for The Last of Us, there's no doubt. So we've talked about two video game adaptations so far. But should we talk about just some straight video game news? Let's do it. What do you got for me? This one was kind of interesting to me. I want to. I guess there is news in this, but I'm going to pose it as a question to you and the audience out there. So I'm curious, was Jedi Fallen Order a first step? Are narrative Star Wars games back? Of course, we have Battlefront, we have Star Wars Squadrons, we have all the multiplayer games. Knights of the Old Republic Revival is happening, and apparently Ubisoft that you just mentioned is also developing a narrative-based Star Wars project as well. So we we kind of found out those bits of news this month, and we can't really talk too much about it. I mean, it's exciting, so I just thought I would pose this to you, and we can just discuss real quick 
what would we want to see from like an Ubisoft narrative Star Wars game? What could that look like? I don't know if I have a great answer for what I do want to see. However, I do have something I do not want to see. I do not want to see any Tatooine in any future <laughs> Star Wars games. We've gotten a lot of Tatooine over the years, so I agree with you. I mean, it's an, another easy answer. Again, maybe I'm playing it too safe, but I would say Ubisoft is kind of also known for playing it a bit safe, which isn't a bad thing, but could we see an Assassin's Creed style or a Far Cry style game that's just you play as a Star Wars character in that sort of open world setting, like with side quests and this, like a similar mission structure. I mean, I feel like that could be possible. I'd be totally interested in that. I mean, Fallen Order was kind of open world, um, not not in the sense that like the Assassin's Creeds are, but to have like an Assassin's Creed type open world sprawling Star Wars game would be awesome. And I would be totally down for that. And Ubisoft is great at, at creating those worlds. So I would not be surprised at all if the, if the Star Wars game that Ubisoft is making is open world. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And again, Knights of the Old Republic, more of a traditional RPG. Those were, they're a bit out of date now whenever you go back and play those classic Bioware games, but I think they're going to try and give us something that will be more up to the times, maybe a la Final Fantasy VII Remake, kind of changing up the gameplay in that way. But I do think it will be more of a Mass Effect style Star Wars game like the old one. So that could be cool too. I know we kind of already get this from Battlefront. Would you be interested in a clone trooper shooter built from the ground up with the single player focus in mind? Hmm. I mean, I guess we've kind of gotten stuff like that before, but you're right. It's very rarely single player focused. I think it could be cool. Um, I think any way to kind of humanize characters in Star Wars is always something I'm excited about. Stormtroopers over the years have certainly, I think, needed that treatment. And yeah, if they made something like that, clones, like you said as well, I mean, I guess you phrased it more like the clones. That could also be interesting because they have very tragic stories and kind of the way their programming works. So Absolutely. I mean, I know we kind of give Star Wars shit sometimes, but I mean, if they made like a really fun to play game that actually gives us the chance to make decisions and have really fun gameplay that is a little bit less focused on just the monotony of multiplayer games like the Battlefront stuff, then I'd be down for that. Okay, so that is the three new stories that we found the most interesting for the month of February. Uh, go ahead, let us know on Instagram, at the Arnie's, uh, what news stories are some of your favorites this month, and if there were anything that you wish we had included. And for now, Matt, let's get into the main topic of this month's show, our favorite levels in gaming. This was tough, Austin. I guess before we even start, I mean, was this an easy list for you to put together? It was really hard for me because I felt like I wanted to include stuff from my childhood. And I guess I kind of kept coming around. Maybe it's just recency bias, but I kind of found myself leading towards stuff that I had played when I was older, maybe because I appreciated them more at the time. But yeah, I want to know, was this a tough list for you to put together? It was tough for me to compile three. I had one for sure in my mind that I was already kind of thinking about, and that's kind of what sparked the idea for this episode. Um, and, and then coming up with two more was kind of hard just to fill out content. Uh, but I, th I think we have a great list here. I'm excited to talk about the six that we've selected. Me too. I'm excited. So the first one I'm going to talk about, I don't actually have too much to say because the, me the reason I love it is mostly for the gameplay side of it, which I know sounds stupid. It's a video game, so I should have a lot to say, but let me just get into it. So one of my favorite levels is, Dis is from Dishonored 2, and it is the Clockwork Mansion. Now, Austin, you played a little bit of Dishonored. I know you weren't able to get into it, but let me tell you about what this level is. Maybe it'll pique your interest. And I know you won't play it because you'd have to play the first one and then the second one, but maybe someone can appreciate this. So 
Dishonored 2 has two really cool levels. It's pretty standard fare, you know, it's like the first one. You get these kind of huge areas, you can be stealthy, you can be kind of out front and aggressive with your gameplay, whatever. But there's two standouts. One of them is this level later in the game, where you're in this house and you're trying to find your targets and you have, it's an item you get only in this level. And it basically allows you, like this place you're in is very run down and decrepit. And it's an item that basically lets you look through a lens and you get to kind of like see how it looked years and years ago. So you're basically solving puzzles in the past to affect the future where you are. And you can kind of move around the level like that. Oh, like the like detective vision in the Arkham games? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's the same concept with the way you use it. It's just that it's so cool being in the present day and basically you'll come up to a door and it's like, well, how the fuck do I get through this? And then you look through the lens and it shows you, you're basically in a rundown house. When you look through the lens, you're in the middle of a party from years and years ago. And there's all these people running around. So it allows you to solve puzzles. And then whenever you take the lens off, once you do, the passage is clear and you can keep going to find your target or whatever you're trying to do. But there's a level called the Clockwork Mansion pretty early in the game. And it's what kind of got me hooked because I was playing and I was like, I'm liking this game. I'm having fun. But this level is obviously a mansion based on the descriptor. You're looking for your target. You also have side missions to save an old friend, all, all that good stuff. But once you go in, it's just the way they design. I mean, the level design here is some of the best I've ever seen. The mansion kind of presents itself as pretty run of the mill. It's like, oh, it looks beautiful, but it's it's almost like a movie set, like a secret movie set. Things move around. Like You'll pull levers, you'll press buttons, you'll just walk through doors, and the entire room will just start shifting around you. And sometimes... You can literally like go behind the scenes in a way. Like if you see like a like a platform raising and stuff starting to turn, you see like a little wave through. You can like drop down, and now you're like, oh, I'm like in a, like a movie set, like behind like a green screen in a way. Like in a way, it's like you're in a set. It's like this is so weird. So aren't there like um like destructible walls or, or like mirrors in this level that you can break, and then it like lets you into the like bowels of the mansion? Exactly. That's yeah. That's a good way to put it. That's what I was trying to kind of say. Is uh. You can move throughout the mansion into this beautiful mansion, but there's also ways to kind of get behind the walls into the bowels, as you put it. And it's one of the ways you can kind of be a bit more stealthy throughout the level. And there's one point where if you pull a lever, it like moves things around and it's an empty room. But then if you pull a lever, all these enemies come up that activate and kind of can break your stealth. And even when you're not like behind stuff, like in the bowels, like you can still kind of move the rooms around to solve puzzles, give you access to windows, it lets you outside, it lets you maybe find a vent that takes you under the mansion, that lets you kind of show up under your target, for example. So it's just some of like the best level design I've ever seen. And it just, it feels like they constructed a level that was so conducive to the Dishonored gameplay. Even if you are playing a bit more Guns A-Blazing, it's just so much fun. And I remember whenever I was initially playing this game, I replayed this level maybe three or four times and just played it completely differently. And every single time I found a new room or new area by just moving around and trying to find different little clues or hints or collectibles or other ways to solve the side quests or main missions. So it just is one of the most like efficient, and effective, most fun levels I've played in so long. In order so I could like visualize what you're going to be talking about, I went and watched a gameplay clip of this level because I'd never played it. And it looks so cool the way the levels like adjust in on itself whenever you try to reorganize some of the rooms. Yeah, and then it just gets all the more haunting whenever you have to make your way out, basically. Just whenever people are a bit more aware of your presence, you have to be almost more careful, be more aware of some maybe secret exit, stuff like that. So they really just nailed it with this one. Can you get lost in the mansion on your way out? Like if you don't remember the path you took? 
you didn't get lost going in. You can <laughs> you can hit a hit a <laughs> wrong button, end up in a weird like angle in a room, and it's like how the fuck did I get here? And then you get confused about how you ended up there in the first place, or you move to the next room and it's a dead end. You come back, and then how did I get to this? How did I get to that room before this? So yeah, it can get very daunting, especially when there's enemies around <laughs> looking for you. So. Yeah, you got to be a bit careful with this one. Definitely take some notes if you're going to try this level out. You might want to leave some breadcrumbs as well. Okay, well, my, my first favorite level here, I, I don't think requires any note-taking, but uh, one of the most memorable levels that I've played in a game is in Mass Effect 2, and it is Tally's loyalty mission, and it is specifically when you choose to bring Legion along. So this mission finds you escorting Tally back to the Quarian migrant fleet uh, to stand trial after being accused of endangering the fleet by working with uh, Geth technology. So Matt, I know you have, I know you're a huge fan of Mass Effect 2. Have you ever played this mission and chosen Legion to be your companion? I did. I think the last time I played through was the first time I ever brought Legion along. It just never even occurred to me. And part of me maybe was too scared to. I was like, what's that going to mean if I do that? Like, will the game even allow me to? But the most recent playthrough, which must have been in the last two years... I did bring Legion along, and while I can't remember all of the details, which I'm glad you're going to kind of remind me, it definitely was the most memorable that that mission has ever been. Because that one was always cool, but there was always other standouts to me, but that one, bringing Legion along, just that little change to your party member, definitely elevated this one by a long shot. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because I... I think I did this on like my second or third playthrough of this game. And I literally, it was like a joke in my head. I was like, oh, I wonder if I get to that tally mission. I wonder what happens if I bring Legion. And like you said, I fully expected either like to, the game to stop me or like tally to be like, hey, you can't bring Legion. Um, and, and I was shocked to find out how much it actually changes the opening dynamic of this level. I was not expecting for it to open up brand new dialogue trees. Doing this really made me feel like I had just like unlocked like exclusive content of the game in a way. No, it's so cool. I mean, that's just one of the cool things about Mass Effect. I mean, there's already so many different hundreds and thousands probably options that any player can get whenever they're moving through these games for the first time. And the idea that there's this whole other, just completely different set of dialogue options that you can unlock just by bringing one different party member is so weird to me. It reminds me of whenever I played through Mass Effect 3 for the first time. I was just so excited to play it, and I hadn't, I had like the standard edition of it, so I wasn't bothering with any DLC um, at first, which I should have because I had access to this one. So I played through the entire game without Javik, um, who's this character, this Prothean that you can unlock from doing an even Prime mission. And whenever I played through it again the next time, I unlocked him and I was like, oh, he's kind of cool. He's not like my favorite to use combat wise or anything. But then when you start bringing him along, he really explains almost <laughs> the whole point of the game, <laughs> like the whole relationship with the Reapers had with the Protheans and how that's affecting the Reapers relationships with you. And he knows all this information as he went through it. And it made me go, how can I even enjoy this game in the future without ever bringing him along. So it's the same thing here. It's like the Tali mission's cool and it's a different style of mission with the whole almost like courtroom setting. But you're so right. It's like this is just one of the best missions in the series if you bring Legion along. And it kind of endeared me to Legion because similar to Javik, I, I liked Legion as a character, but I never was really enthusiastic about bringing him along because I, he wasn't my favorite to use combat-wise or power set-wise. And it kind of made me rethink Mass Effect. It's like, that's not always important because you can get so many different dialogue options with that. So it's kind of worth it to experiment a little bit. That's kind of the mind-blowing thing to me about this is, and, and like what you said too, like they recorded entire lines and, and hours of dialogue 
and some players may never even hear it like it's you can play this whole game and never get some of this stuff it's just crazy the amount of detail that they put into these types of decisions and and bringing legion along like you said really for me it makes me it makes me feel like i can only ever do this mission which legion whenever i decide to replay in the future Mm -hmm. um and and it, it doesn't really change the overall gameplay or outcome of the mission but it does it does completely kind of change the dynamic of the beginning almost immediately the mission feels different if you choose to bring any of your other squad mates along you're kind of welcomed onto the quarian ship uh pretty openly but if you show up at legion immediately you walk on board and the quarian soldiers have their guns drawn on you and tell you that they're not letting a geth come on the ship and if you don't have enough paragon or a renegade built up you actually will have to choose a new squad mate if you, if you can persuade the captains to let them bring Legion in with you, you do unlock all this extra dialogue. And so it really feels like if you can if you can persuade them, then you've like found a way to cheat the game. Hmm. Yeah, it's such a good way to put it. I mean, so cool. Just a perfect little detail amongst a series full of so many that we love. It's really interesting, too, because you do get to see a lot of the different Quarians' various points of view whenever they interact with Legion. Because uh, for those of you that don't remember, the Quarians created the Geth, and then eventually the Geth uh, developed... Um, enough of like a, a thinking ability to overthrow uh, their their creators and legion refers to like all the different quarian people on the ship as creator whenever he sees admirals he says like creator admiral which is like kind of really funny and cute in a way um, but like some of them are like saying that he should be destroyed some of them want to study him others want to learn like want to go under the surface and learn how he thinks about the quarians so like you just get all this extra content that you wouldn't get if you didn't think to bring him with you on the ship it's so cool absolutely so like i said it doesn't really change the overall objective or the mission or the outcome of the mission it just kind of unlocks this extra content but it really does it really did make me appreciate how subtly you can impact the player experience in this game and, and it'll always stand out in my mind that, like i had this idea randomly to try this and then it worked beyond my wildest expectations so true and that's kind of a perfect little segue because Independent of you, I also put a Mass Effect 2 mission on my favorite levels of all time list. And it is, I'm sure some people might guess, the suicide mission, aka it's the last mission of the game. This is where we finally go through the Omega 4 relay, which they've literally been telling us about since the opening of the game. We've known about it since the beginning. We've had this mission basically available to us for the entire time, it seems like. And we're finally doing it. We're going through, and It's weird, man, because whenever you go on missions in Mass Effect, the whole thing is you pick your two party members, right? That's what you do. But then this mission starts up and it's like, okay, I'm picking my party members once I get down. That makes sense. They want to give us a cool little cutscene, so I get it. Oh, wait, this is weird. What? I need to send somebody through this pipe to work on something to clear a path? Wait, I'm only picking one? What what, what am I doing here? And it's this whole weird thing where throughout this mission, not only are you picking party members, but you're basically also picking your characters based on their skill set to do certain jobs. Oh, and also, if you pick the wrong person, they die. And they stay dead throughout the rest of the game, the ending, and all of Mass Effect 3 if you carry that save over. So (laughs) it is just the definitive example in the Mass Effect series of like, choice and the things that you thought didn't matter like making upgrades to your ship throughout the game turns out if you didn't do that you're probably wondering why should i but if you don't then your characters will die during the initial kind of flying through the relay and it's just such an amazing package and it kind of also kind of going off of your last uh, level austin it wants you as the player to have done the loyalty missions because your characters are more likely to succeed and survive if you do all of those and they feel more of a 
loyalty and just closeness to Shepard. So it kind of just ties everything together. It's crazy. And they're more likely to uh, trust your plan, too, in this mission. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Great point. Which is very important for some of your party members like Miranda and Jacob, who are Cerberus. So it is kind of you are always starting off on a weird footing with them. So it's important to do those missions to ensure they survive. And tell me about like the first time you did this, Austin. Did you lose anybody? Do you remember? First time I did this, I actually lost Legion because oh. uh, I I didn't know that there there's a scene there's a scene earlier before before you do the suicide mission where uh, some members of your crew get kidnapped. And, and what I didn't realize is you have kind of a clock after when they get kidnapped to go try and rescue them. Mm -hmm. And you can only do two other missions in between uh, the kidnapping and the suicide mission or else some of those crew members will die. So I I wrapped up two of the loyalty missions but didn't do legions because he wasn't that important to me at the time. And so I and then I went straight into the suicide mission and uh, legion died. And I was shocked to actually see a play out on screen. And I before Mass, before I went on to play Mass Effect 3, I felt the need to replay Mass Effect 2 to make sure legion would still be alive. Exactly. Yeah. Because I mean, they do punish you. It's like if that's the save that you end with, then you're basically going to have to go back and replay it. Or at least that part, you got to kind of hope that you had a save from before the finale so you can try again or else you're kind of screwed for Mass Effect 3. Are there any standouts in the suicide mission of like specific character moments for you? I don't know about specific character moments. I mean, I've definitely played through it more than once and I've experimented. I wanted, I wanted to see some of the scenes and some of the great scenes you get are when they die. Like there's a scene where I think Morden is most often to die. Like he's most likely to um, based on certain aspects of choice throughout the games and his death scene and the sacrifice he makes. It's like, wow, that's so powerful. Um, even if he does die, it's still an amazing scene, which is crazy. And then just seeing everybody come together. I know it's a simple answer, but just seeing Garrus and Tally and just especially the characters from Mass Effect 1 who you've built such a rapport with kind of just having your back and working together is so fun. But I mean, we got to say the best part of this mission, maybe like the most let's go hype moment from any video game that I can think of in recent memory is once you do beat the human reaper that the collectors are after it's like the final boss of the game basically you take a big fall and you wake up and just the music swells and you and your remaining party members which by the way you can lose all of them potentially but it's you and whoever's remaining it's just the music starts to swell and you're literally sprinting while this place is coming down and that final slow-mo shot of jumping to the normandy hoping you have crew members left alive to catch you and then flying off wow it's just a moment I literally will never forget when it comes to video games. Yeah, it's so cinematic. And, and Mass Effect is one of the few series that actually nails the cutscenes. Like, they're actually so interesting to watch, uh, even though you're not playing as the character. Yeah, and it was always such a weird premise for a game. I remember when it opened and the whole idea was um, the elusive man was putting this team together. And then it's like, no, I'm Shepard. I'm going to put my team together. And it's like, okay, you go on all these random missions, which is just recruiting people. And then at the end, I mean, really, it's kind of surprising that there's not much more to the game than that. The missions are recruiting people. You can do loyalty missions to kind of build up your rapport with them. And then there's the suicide mission at the end. There's little, like, you know, stops in between here and there. But for the most, like, the most part, that is what the game is. And the fact that it is still so compelling when it comes to characters and the payoff, it's like characters like Jack and... I don't know, maybe Jacob, for example, you might think, am I really going to get close to this person? Even Kelly. Yeah, and if you play the game right, it's it just makes such a cinematic and emotional difference at the end. I mean, it's just so cool to see these characters come together. So it's just so satisfying. Some of the most satisfaction I've ever gotten from playing a video game. I think you could almost make the argument that Mass Effect 2 really is majority side missions. And, and usually in, in open world games, side missions are not that much of the focus and they're not 
like a lot most of the resources of an open world game don't usually go to the side missions they're just kind of filler time but in mass effect 2 everything you do feels important and it's one of the few games that i think really does nail their side missions and each one feels handcrafted and unique to the story absolutely completely agree i'll just i'm always gonna love this series but speaking of handcrafted and unique austin tell me about your next one because i was kind of surprised when i saw you put this on the list but whenever i started reading your points i was like i'm kind of liking his take on this so tell me about it my next point here may be one of the most tense levels in a game that i've played in recent memory and that is the last of us part two's mission the descent uh, this one takes place during the Seattle Day 2 storyline, and it finds Abby and Lev trying to make it back to the Wolf headquarters through a shortcut that Lev knows about from his time as a Seraphite. Um, and, and for me, I just think this mission is such a great example of level design. The, the bulk of this mission takes place in a skyscraper in Seattle, and you actually start at the top and as you're moving all the way down to the ground level. Yeah, it was just presented so well. You're so right. I mean, especially the first time you play it, but having played it a couple times, it does still hold up in that tense factor and just the way they designed, it sounds weird to say, but the way they actually designed how you move down even feels unique. It's not as simple as just moving down stairs. Like you get to do that, but you only go down like two floors and then you have to find a gas mask, you have to lev and climb down a rope. And then the way that you can actually get to that point where it opens up and look down to see how bar you have to freaking go is it's just presented so well and i love how simple it is you're right i mean you literally fall through the roof into the pool and then for you know all intents and purposes the goal is just to move from a roof to the ground and they did it so well so yeah keep telling me about this one because this is this is exciting i really think last of us part two does that i I need to get from point a to point b aspect so well throughout the entirety of this game because even in the broader um seattle like city campaign when you're playing as ellie you're just moving towards the aquarium for the entirety of her story and you can see you can always see the aquarium and they did this in last of us part one too but you can always see your objective and it makes the world feel so broad totally totally i just this is such a great mission but we also have to talk about the fact that it's not quite as simple as moving down and it isn't tense because of how the inside looks it's also tense because i feel like they just throw so many infected at you in this level that it is just it's haunting and it's dark of course which makes it even worse so tell me about that aspect of it too yeah i completely agree i think this is one of the tensest missions in the game um and and you you did mention the stairwells too in the brief moments where you are on a stairwell they also make it clear that you can see what floor you're on and so i think you start at like floor 25 and so sometimes you'll come across and it'll feel like you've been in this building forever. And then you'll hit a stairwell and it'll say like 420. And you're like, oh, geez, mm-hmm. I still got 20 more floors to go in this building. Um, I just love the way you move down this building, uh, the way you descend into the interior. Um, you're not just going down stairwells. There's a point where you have to slide down a fire hose to get to a new floor. Uh, you're walking across I-beams. Um, there's a lot of kind of just dropping in between like holes in the ground level. And the further you go, the more you're losing light. So it's getting more and more dark. And it's also kind of getting more and more uh, closing in around you as well. So you get this great sense of claustrophobia as well. It's haunting. And it gets to a point where it's literally just this little square foyer, I guess you could say. And it's just you constantly finding ways to like jump across to get you a little bit lower. And it's just it gets so claustrophobic. You're so right. And of course, whenever they start introducing infected into those really small areas, like even the bathrooms, which is like how small they are. They just jump out at you. So it's this added scare factor as well of you feel like you're going to be safe, at least when you're moving down. But it's like, nope, actually, we're still going to throw monsters at you. And you can also see down uh, into the building, like towards the ground level. But because you're losing light, it's getting darker and darker. And, and the building itself, while you're moving through, it kind of feels never ending because you, you can't really see the bottom. You, you lose that visual cue like you've had for the majority of the game of where you're headed. 
Um, I also think it's just so beautifully designed on the inside in such a weird way. Um, the building itself is just kind of overgrown with spores, and it really gives you this feeling of of uh, just being lost to the infected. Um, and, and the way they make this building kind of crumbling with, with light cords falling out of the rooftops and, and ceiling tiles missing, it's just it's just an attention to detail that you really only find in Naughty Dog games. Um, and, and they also don't really give you any choice but to take this level slow. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to move at, at a snail's pace because this building is full of uh, the stalkers infected, which kind of peer at you from around the corners. You can't hear them whenever you're listening, and they'll hide from your light too. So you really have to be careful and kind of look around every corner to make sure one of them can't jump out and get you. Ugh, that's so true. Because I just, whenever I was in this level, I just wanted to try and move quickly through it because it was so haunting. But yeah, you're right. They, I think they purposely designed it so you have no option but to just move so slow, be careful, even, even in like the freaking traversal aspect of it if you're not careful you'll fall down a chasm so they just yeah they made this one pretty damn scary and they also make it to where you can hear the infected on through like across multiple levels of the building because it's so broken it always leaves you with this feeling of being trapped inside the skyscraper as well i I just think they really nailed the creepiness and tenseness of the atmosphere that you're supposed to feel and then also the whole time you're moving down abby's constantly commenting to lev like i hate this building i hate this building this is like the worst decision we've made Uh, and so just her dialogue also kind of adds to the sense of, of dread being in this building just really a knockout of a level so good so good i always kind of like key in on one experience from a game when I think about it. And every time I think about The Last of Us Part 2, it's usually this level. Same thing with Mass Effect 2, the suicide mission for me. It's just that's you got to key into something. There's something that will never leave you. And yeah, I think I'm right there with you. I don't think I would have thought that going into this conversation. But thinking back to the first time I played, I really do think for a long time, I will remember the way they presented that skyscraper mission and just descending it, like you said. So it's it's pretty damn memorable in a really freaking memorable game. So that's pretty high praise, I feel like. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, why don't you move us along here, Matt? What is your next favorite level? So this one's going to be really quick. Um, I'm not putting this one on here for gameplay or level design or anything like that, which probably should be expected for this conversation. But you know what? I thought it might be fun to put something on this list for pure shock factor alone. And what better example than Bioshock Infinite's level Sea of Doors, which once again is also, I guess you could just call it the last level of the game. So you're telling me (laughs) that this game, I'm going to play through the whole fucking thing and there's no connection to Rapture and Bioshock 1. Really? I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Oh, wait, I get to the end. I beat the boss. The screen goes white, Austin. The screen goes white. And where... Am I when the screen comes back up? Not Columbia, not the city in the sky. Are you in Rapture? I'm in Rapture. (laughs) You are back underwater again. And this whole mission, basically, it ties the game together so beautifully. And it also connects it to the larger Bioshock world. And it's basically just telling you, it's answering all these little questions. It's kind of like Lost in a way. Lost was always so good at giving you just little random things. It's like, what what was the point of that? And then somehow by the end, or just as seasons go on, they somehow answer these little seemingly meaningless things. And it's the same thing here. You basically find out that this character that you've been escorting, a la Joel and Ellie from The Last of Us, is actually your daughter. And you find out that your whole reason for being there was not what you thought. And people have been messing with you. Oh, and also on top of that, the main villain of the game is actually a future version of you from an alternate timeline. And it's just so crazy, man. They introduced this aspect of Booker DeWitt, the main character. He, 
felt really guilty about his actions and his sins during the Battle of Wounded Knee. So he goes to get baptized, essentially, to wipe away his debt, wipe away his sins. And he is reborn in that timeline as a character named Comstock, who ends up being the main villain of the game as you're playing through it. So the character that you're with, who's revealed to be your daughter, basically tells you, hey, to get rid of this, we need to wipe that character from all timelines, because in all the timelines, he creates Columbia and he ruins the lives of so many people. And so basically Booker opts to kill himself and he's drowned where he was baptized, preventing that from ever happening. And they, so it's just so cool to me. I just loved how they tied everything together. I love that they connected it to Rapture and Bioshock 1. And they really connected a lot of themes from Bioshock 1 as well into this game. So it was just, I'll never forget it. And we've talked a lot in this episode about things that we'll never forget as we're playing through a game for the first time. And I will just never forget sitting in my dorm, a freshman in college, and playing through this, getting to that ending, waking up in Rapture, and I was just in awe. Bioshock was one of my like top five favorite games of all time. So the fact that they connected this not only... It was like Bioshock Infinite was always, it always felt like its own thing, but it actually did have connections. And it also left us with a very satisfying story on its own with its ending, kind of just saying that this game you've just played is just one in, it's one option, if you will, in a long line of possibilities. There's so many alternate realities, different choices characters make. The lighthouse you found is just one of many. So it just left me with such a jaw drop moment, so shocking. So I just wanted to put that one on there because. I haven't played anything in a game quite like that. Like, I've seen movies and TV shows where that happens, of course, but not quite a moment like this in a game that I played. So I thought it might deserve a shout out. So there sounds like a lot of twists to kind of throw at you all at once in in like an epilogue. Does it all pay off and does it all work in, in the context of the game? I think so. I think it does work in the context of the game. Um, they do pay off a lot of it in future DLC as well, which also called Burial at Sea, which definitely is... Its primary goal is to kind of connect Bioshock Infinite to Bioshock 1 with the whole Rapture setting by using similar characters from Bioshock Infinite. But I do think they leave us like at a good spot without the DLC, too. I feel like Booker is such an interesting character and kind of giving him this send-off that is both sacrificial for his newfound daughter and also noble in the sense that he's ridding the world of his villainous future self that got baptized and kind of chose to kind of take on a new persona that was guilt-free and what that led to, racism and just this desire to rule. So it's it's great character stuff, and it's so well presented. I mean, it's it's just beautifully presented as well, how they move through this epilogue, as you put it. It's kind of this weird montage in a way, and how Elizabeth, the character, you're always been, the, in the game, you've been the one leading her, and she's the one leading you through. She knows the answers now. She found everything out, and she's kind of walking you through how this works, and it is just such a change of pace. It is a lot at once, like you said, but I think after spending a lot of hours playing the first few Bioshock games, while it may be a lot at once, it does feel extremely satisfying. Does she kind of hint that she knows the answers while you're playing through the main game, like while you're leading her? I don't think so. I think it takes getting to the end to find that stuff out. That's kind of the cool thing. She kind of finds it out at the end and is kind of walking you through it, kind of trying to understand it herself because she's finding out at the same time as you. Like she didn't know that Booker was her dad throughout the game and is finding that out. And yeah, so it's just I think the presentation and voice acting from Troy Baker and Courtney Draper also just leads it to be so satisfying. I mean, if I went back and played it, I don't know if it would still work. I admit that, but I wanted to put it on this list because 
I don't know. Certainly since then, there's not been a more shocking moment to me. And maybe it's because I was young, but that is kind of, you know, what the list is about. It's just about how you felt at the time as well. So I wanted to include it for that reason. Can't fault you for that. So, I mean, that takes your breath away while you're playing is, is the whole point of gaming, I think. Hell yeah. Okay. So, so my next one here, and this will be our last point to kind of close out the show. Uh, I think mine will be kind of quick as well, but how can you not talk about a favorite levels in gaming without bringing up all gillied up from Call of Duty Modern Warfare 1? Uh, this is kind of the flashback mission where you play as Captain Price. Him and his commanding officer, Macmillan, are on a mission to assassinate the villain, uh, Zakaev. This mission was just such a surprise to me in the best way. It really breaks from the tr- traditional um, Call of Duty, like, running and gunning formula, and it forces you to be stealthy. I think you can fire, like, a total of seven bullets in this mission, and uh, you really spend most of the game just kind of crawling and, and, and learning Price's backstory. Yeah, and I love when they do that on first-person games, too. It's like they really went all out to kind of give these cool character moments for characters that for most of the time you can't even see. So this was a fun mission, and I like... It, it comes at the perfect time in the game, too, which is important to mention. The mission right after it fucking sucks, but and the missions right before it are just so kind of run and gun, like you said. So it was just the perfect break to the formula. I like how you said that. And it just, I mean, in a Call of Duty game, I mean, think about what, where Call of Duty is at now, and even with the multiplayer and stuff like that, Warzone even. And this mission was all about you wearing a ghillie suit, crawling through a field, letting people walk past you because you had no bullets. So, so different, but really, really fun. I like this pick. It really does, too, have some great, like, adrenaline heart-pounding moments from the first time you play, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, the standout moments for me are, 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 like you said, when you're crawling through the tall grass as a tank convoy passes over you, and, and you can line yourself up perfectly so the vehicles will, will drive over you, or, or you can just try not to move and, and try and get out of the path of the uh, enemy soldiers that are on patrol. And then also there's another great section where you're crawling through supply trucks to avoid an extremely large platoon of soldiers that could easily wipe out you and your partner. I feel like I never... I might have to replay this one because I definitely played it stealthy, but I didn't really get that like get that satisfaction. Like for me, I guess I was more waiting for people to move over me, whereas I guess I could have worked on positioning. So, I mean, does it have replayability in that sense? I know it's one of your favorites, but I feel like I've only played this a few times. So, I mean, are there ways to kind of go about this differently, would you say? I don't think the stealthiness has a big replayability factor, but it does have a a sneaky replayability factor too, because you can also not be stealthy and it's not an instant fail. You're going to be like heavily outnumbered and and you're most likely going to die. You can kind of turn it into like a survival horror mode if you want. Uh, You can, you can pick up unsilenced weapons and and you can try to get in in position to defend yourself. But as soon as you fire an unsilenced gun, you're going to be sworn by kind of all the enemies on the level. Okay. I have no idea. I guess I'm too much of a, uh, rule follower in that sense i never dared <laughs> to break stealth i was too scared because of how many guys there were so oh i used to i used to have a ton of fun letting the first uh platoon where you're where you're in the tall grass i used to have a ton of fun letting them pass me first and then standing up and then letting them get far away and then sniping one of the guys from across the field and then watching them all turn around and rush back at you and then trying to see how long i could last i i would spend like hours doing that in, in this mission i just found it so much fun yeah well there's also kind of a fun little thing for us here as well. I mean, while I'm not as familiar with playing the single player version of this level, we are super familiar with playing in Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, the Spec Ops version of this level, where we, that one, we actually had a lot of replayability. That one was always fun because it's, it is stealthy, but it's not as long. So there were opportunities to kind of, uh, break through and be a bit more guns blazing and trying to take out people at the exact same time, just like in this version of the level too. So 
it kind of has an extra special place in my heart as well because we had we get to play that mission together like in a co-op aspect yeah i completely agree i I love how they tied it into the spec ops of of modern warfare 2 and and for me i just remember kind of like you brought about with your prior point i just remember being so shocked that this was what we were doing for the mission the first time i played it and uh, it'll, this mission, as much as I'm not a, a big fan of the Call of Duty games anymore, this mission specifically will always have a fond place in my heart when I think about this franchise. Absolutely. Could not agree more. Okay. So I think that's going to do it uh, for, our, for our favorite levels in gaming today. But Matt, we did get some good uh, Mass Effect talk in there. We did. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but this is kind of hot off the press uh, as, as the day that we're recording this. Ooh. But Henry Cavill just teased on Instagram that he has a secret project in the works and some internet sleuths have figured out that it is Mass Effect related. Oh, I like that. I like that. Okay. So Henry Cavill, the gamer, of course, he talks about that a lot. <laughs> and he loves The Witcher, which he is in on Netflix. That's season two. I know that's what they're filming. So maybe that's where this came from. But is he working? Is it possible? Is he working on another video game project this soon? That's what it seems like. Uh, it's There's like no information at the time of this recording, but it literally was just a photo of him holding up a script while in hair and makeup. Um, mm-hmm. on, on a set somewhere with the caption secret project question mark and then uh, people over at IGN and stuff have zoomed in on the photo and they were able to highlight the words Talizora, Cerberus, and Geth and then I guess the sentence that they pulled out of that script uh, is believed to be from the wiki notes of Mass Effect 3 because the sentence they pulled out is the same sentence featured on the wiki page. Interesting. Okay, so two questions come to mind. One is they've talked about a Mass Effect movie for a long time. So maybe they're doing a movie or a series or something and he's going to play Shepard or I mean, I guess that's my first question. If they did a movie or a series, would you want him to play Shepard or would you want him to voice a character or play somebody else? I don't know, because I would I would feel bad if they did a series and he played Shepard and then all the people that play as Fem Shep miss out on that experience. That's the problem. But I, I, I know if they do a show, they're going to they're, they're going to have to pick one side. So I don't know, but I could totally see him as a Shepard for sure. It'd be kind of cool if they just like swapped genders like between episodes yeah if they did the show i guess they could swap out like every other episode or something or i don't know they could do something where they're not it's not shepherd and then it's just a different character and maybe they also have a female uh, like a co-captain role type thing where they're just co-captains they do something like that to appease fans which i think would be cool here's my other question though i mean i feel like for most actors of his like notoriety and caliber and just a-list status this wouldn't seem possible but for him, since he is such like a genuine fan of games and he spends a lot of time with that, is it possible that he is being recruited for a voice role in the new Mass Effect, which I mean, I guess you could call Mass Effect 4, which we know takes place in the same world as Tally, Cerberus, and Geth. And I guess when I say world, I mean in the Milky Way. It's kind of more of a direct follow-up to Mass Effect 3. I mean, do you think they asked him to voice a character and maybe he's a fan of the series and he wants to be a part of it? That'd be cool. That'd be cool. I- I'd be down for that. I guess it seems weird that he would choose to take that photo while on a set. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he's just voice acting. Like it kind of seems like he's teasing like a like a live action deal. Just just the fact that he chose to take that photo while in hair and makeup for for a live action show. It's true. It's true. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what they could do if they did like a Mass Effect live action because it is so true. Like you said, it's there's so much choice that goes into even starting out in Mass Effect, creating your character. So you are starting off on a weird foot if you just cast a dude, even if, even if it's Henry Cavill. And it's like so many people love playing as Femshep. So it's a tough call if they're just going to adapt it straight. And then you're also just going to piss people off by making different choices than they did. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know how they do this. It's going to be 
weird either way if this is what they're doing. I mean, teasing a secret project. I hope it's not just something where he's trying to will it into existence. <laughs> like there's there is no project. <laughs> and he's just trying to make it happen. But I don't know. I would I would kind of like it if he was trying to will it into existence. Like if he's that big of a fan that he wants something to get made. I kind of like the idea of that. I definitely wouldn't mind some like other media Mass Effect. Um, whether it be a movie or TV, I don't care what story they pick, but Henry Cavill being involved is cool regardless. Make him Garrus. We like Garrus. We like Henry Cavill. He can play Garrus. Ooh. I have a question for you, though, Matt. Between Superman, The Witcher, and now Mass Effect, is Henry Cavill becoming the ultimate nerd? I think he might be. I think he might be. And that video of him building a PC all day. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. That, it, it was, that was like a weirdly charming video too. Like I actually enjoyed watching that. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think he just genuinely is a nerd. He's told the story of he almost missed out on Superman because Zack Snyder called him to tell him he got it, but he was busy like taking turns in World of Warcraft and like missed the call. So he's always been this way. So you know what? I feel like if he's utilizing his celebrity status and ability to get projects made and he just wants to make cool video game projects out of stuff that he likes... I don't know if it'll always be hits, but I think it's at least admirable and kind of fun. I agree. And also Henry Cavill, A plus dog. The dog that mm. he's got is just such a treat every time you post about it on Instagram. So true. So true. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, this is Co-op Couch. This is just a sideshow of the Arnie's. Our main episodes come out every Tuesday. They're primarily uh, movie and TV focused. So if you're new this week, uh, be sure to check out that as well. At the Arnie's is our social, and the Arnie's.media is the website. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing it with a friend, that really is the best way to help us continue to grow this show. We'll be back on Sunday for the continuation of our ongoing series on WandaVision. And then, of course, our main episode will be back on Tuesday for the start of our brand new series and review, the MCU Phase 1 with Iron Man. We have a lot of MCU coming, guys. They announced today that Loki will premiere in June. We have Falcon and Winter Soldier coming. We only have two episodes of WandaVision left, so we figured, let's just keep the ball rolling. We are going to be reviewing each and every movie in phase one of the MCU, like Austin said, starting with Iron Man. So it's going to be fun to revisit that. So with that, everybody, please send us a DM on Instagram at the Arnie's. Let us know what were your thoughts on this episode of Co-op Couch? What are your personal favorite levels in video game history? And what are your thoughts on WandaVision, guys? We've been asking that each and every episode. We want to know what people think because we are pretty damn confused, but we love it at the same time. Let us know what your thoughts are, and we're going to be seeing you pretty soon. All right, everybody. Have a great week. We'll talk to you later. Player two disconnected.